listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, hi, it's fantastic to be with you today. We are kicking off a new series. My name is Mark, if I haven't met you, and this series is going to be called Rebuilding Hope. And we're going to be looking at what is God doing amongst us at this point in time. So this is going to be going from here all the way up to Pentecost. Starting with a scripture, and uh, it's just a small piece of scripture. And it's from the book of Amos, chapter 2, verse 11. The book of Amos kicks off and is describing this really tough period uh, in the people of God where so much hope has been lost. But God says this, I also raised up prophets from amongst your children and Nazarites from among your youth. This is what God says and declares to his people. We're going to come back to that. But I wanted to begin actually at a point in 2018. In 2018, um, I had a sabbatical Uh, which is a break from doing ministry for a number of years. And Trudy, my wife, and I traveled to the United Kingdom. And one of the things we really felt God asking us to do was to pray at these various sites of revival around the UK. And we did that in a number of different sites. And one of the places we went to was the famous uh, English evangelist, the father of Methodism, John Wesley's, uh, has this like chapel place where he lived. And we had this particular moment where we were able to pray where he prayed. And those prayers created this entire movement of faith and renewal, uh, which sprung out of of Britain all around the world, even touched Australia. And to see this man who prayed at this moment, when many people had written the church off in the UK, uh, that actually see how hope just burst from that room was incredibly inspiring. And really, this was sort of the cherry on the cake of something that God had been doing for about a year before then. In uh, 2017, one night as I was preaching in our 5 p.m. series, I really felt God speak to me as I was preaching and really called me to begin to preach and lead into renewal. The idea that God is going to break in and renew his church in an incredible supernatural way. And so in many ways, Red sort of began to reposition as we began to be a place that would call for God to renew us, that we had reached the limit of what we could do just through our own human smarts and human endeavor. Little did I know that some of those uh, sermons that I preached in 2017 would sort of grow. Some of them were recorded uh, for a podcast that we were doing called This Cultural Moment with my friend John Marcoma from Portland And it was incredible the way that just some of those thoughts of God wanting to do renewal now took off all around the world. Uh, I also wrote a book on renewal called Reappearing Church. I just want to read a quote from that book. And this is literally the last paragraph of the entire book. And it ends on the story of me praying with Trudy and these other people in, in John Wesley's prayer room. It said, Wesley's great achievement was not that he sang his own song, but that he rediscovered God's song and sang it afresh over a newly emerging landscape. That is the heart of renewal, 
the soundtrack of revival. That is what we are called to do again. Will you sing God's song over secularized Western culture, over our globalized world? Will you contend? Will you seek out the hungry and form a remnant? Will you seek his presence with all your heart? Will you, with a growing chorus of millions across the world, cry out, do it again, Lord? And that statement, do it again, Lord, in many ways is one of the great prayers of people who hunger for renewal, revival and awakening. And so my experience for the last few years has been talking to people, speaking, conversing, hearing from people all around the world. And what I have discerned from that process is what felt like this very personal, quiet thing that God was doing at Red Church in 2017 actually aligned with the heart of God all across the world. And I noticed a few things, that there is this growing hunger for renewal. There is a growing hunger for renewal in the church, this sense that the church must change and be changed by God, that we need Him, we need Him to renew us. There's this sense for more of God's presence. I hear that everywhere. This sense that what people want to feel is not just good programs or or church done well, but what people are hungering for is actually God's presence in our services, in our discipleship communities, in our personal lives, in our homes. Also, what we've seen, I think, over the last few years is not just that there's a hunger for renewal in the church, and this is what I preached on last week, there's actually a hunger for renewal in the world, that there's this increased lack of tolerance for injustice in the world, this frustration that we still encounter these failings of the human heart, uh, be an individual intolerance for others or hatred for others, just systemic injustices. There's this sense that the world longs to be renewed. And actually, that's what unites all sides of the political spectrum. If you listen to what they're all asking, they may be saying different things, but all, in a sense, are wishing for the world to be renewed. And there's also this sense I I hear in our personal lives. So many people feel like they've been too busy, that they're too scattered, they're too distracted. There's things in their individual lives, in their relational lives, that people are hungering for renewal. There is a hunger for renewal in the world and the church. And one of the things that I wrote about and spoke about uh, as God was putting his heart for renewal in my heart, was that often when you look at the story of history, when you look at the story of scriptures, one of the sayings that I felt God asked me to to speak out into the world was that often when it seems the darkest, when it seems the most hopeless, when it seems like the moment that we could give up, that's precisely the moment that we need to have hope. Why? Because so often in the story of the church, in the story of God's people, crisis precedes renewal. That it's those moments when it's like time to write the epitaph for the church, that actually the church gets renewed. So I've been speaking about this for a couple of years. God has a heart for renewal. Crisis precedes renewal. And at the beginning of 2020, we hit a crisis, a global crisis, this pandemic, which we've been living through for over 12 months. And at the beginning, as we saw people jump onto online churches, we saw prayer movements around the world, there was this sense, and I had people writing to me, he'd been following and reading my books and like, hey, is this actually the moment where renewal will break out in a global awakening of God's church? So here we are at the beginning of 2021. And there's a really interesting question, like has renewal broken out? This hunger we have for renewal, this desire, has it actually translated to seeing the church renewed in this time? 
The short answer is we see sprouts, we see springs of life, we see a heart for renewal. People are talking about it, but have we seen, we've seen it translate in really profound ways like the ways we've seen in great moves of God in the past? I would say we've not seen that yet, particularly in the Western world. There are parts of the world where that's happening, but in terms of the secularizing Western world, which is the context we find ourselves in, have we seen that in any great way yet? No. And this is something that I've really thought about. And part of the problem, I think, is that we can misunderstand the statement that crisis precedes renewal and say that crisis always leads to renewal. And this is actually not the case. Crisis doesn't always lead to renewal, but crisis always leads to a revealing. Crisis always leads to a revealing. And so COVID-19 didn't necessarily bring a renewal. And we don't know the whole game isn't over yet. We don't know what the story is going to look like. But at this stage, it necessarily hasn't brought a renewal in the secularized West, but it has brought a revealing. It's revealed to us a series of weaknesses, both in the culture and in the church, the failings of individualism, but also the church, sometimes an absence of leadership. The way the church is actually even not just echoed to the world, but look like an even sometimes a crazier version of the world in some places. We've also seen that the revealing that's come in this crisis is that this is bigger. There's something bigger in the world going on than just the pandemic, that the world is moving into a new phase. And so we find ourselves living in these really strange in-between times that we're living in this time where there is a decline in much of the church in the West and there's a hunger for renewal, but we're not at renewal. We're in a gray zone between decline and renewal. We also find ourselves at this point of the pandemic in this weird thing in Australia, as we've managed to, through quarantine, keep mostly the the virus out as we're waiting on the vaccine rollout. You're seeing countries around the world vaccinating. It's this weird thing where you see one article about a country where rates are dropping because they're doing good uh, quarantine or they're vaccinating. And then another country where it's like growing. It's this weird moment where it feels like we're in the sort of third quarter Uh, or perhaps the last quarter of this pandemic. But are we in COVID world? Are we in post-COVID world? Are we in some weird in-between state? We also have this sense that you walk around and you see places which you live and things look normal, but you know there's been all this change underneath the surface. As people have come back into in-person worship at Red, we've explained to people some of the different stuff that's been happening. People expecting people to come back, talking about what it's like during the pandemic. And people are often really surprised at how much change has happened. Melbourne is still there in terms of its bricks and mortar buildings, yet actually so much has changed. I was reading an article about what's happening in rural Tasmania as there's towns filling with people from Melbourne and Sydney and there's been this great change that's happened, but it doesn't feel like a change, but it sort of does. It's a grey in-between zone. So how are we to follow God during this time? What does the call to renewal look like when we're in these grey zones between decline and renewal? How do we prepare for renewal? How do we contend for renewal? How do we live in this weird in-between COVID, post-COVID time, this time where it's very clear that we're moving from one stage of history to the next, but it's not fully here yet and we can't even describe what the next phase is going to look like? Well, I wanted to refer to a text. And this text is linked to the text in Amos that I read out. 
And this is actually the story of a kind of crisis that had happened in the land of Israel. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, this is a passage God has continually had before me uh, in really the last sort of two years, 24 months. Now, just to give you some background, what's going on is that there's a famine in the land. There is a natural disaster. People are unable to eat. And this is putting huge stress on the people who live in Israel at this time. At the same time, there's this tremendous loss of faith. There's this apostasy as people are leaving the worship of the one true God and worshiping other gods, the gods of the surrounding nations like Baal and Asherah. There's a persecution because of those who have abandoned their faith are actually persecuting the people of God. There is a leadership crisis. Israel is being run by a very poor, terrible king called Ahab. Ahab is captured by fear. And because of the fear that he feels, he actually allows this his wife Jezebel to actually speak and actually control things. And she really represents in the story the spirit of control. Often fear and the spirit of control are dance partners. And what's happening is because of this dynamic, the voice of God is being silenced, exhausted. The traditional mouthpieces of God, the prophets are being persecuted. So that's the background. But there is one prophet who is still in business and his name is Elijah. And he enters into this power encounter with these various prophets of Baal where he faces down the forces that are coming against God in this time. So we're going to bring in 1 Kings 18 verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. Now what has happened before this is that there has been this great power display where the prophets of Baal have tried to call down fire from the sky and they have ripped their clothes and shouted and and exerted themselves in this prayer, but nothing has happened. This is a power encounter between Baal, Asherah, and Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. So I'll start again. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked the water in the trench. What is going on here? 
What has struck me in reading this is that in the midst of this passage, Elijah says the words, do it again, Lord. I had been praying, God, do it again, Lord. That was the end of my book. God, do it again. Bring renewal, bring revival, bring awakening like you have throughout history. Send the fire, send the fire. And that passage that we just read contains that do it again, but it's actually a kind of do it again that comes before the fire falls. So let's just unpack this. Firstly, what does Elijah do? Elijah is in this gray zone, this completely bizarre world in between decline and hope for renewal. He's in this gray zone where Israel is stuck between trying to be Israel, worshipping the nations around them. He's in this space where actually the institutions are falling because famine is pressuring the nation. So the first thing he does is he calls the people to him. This is being done in public. There is a symbology, a symbolic act, a parabolic, or that's like a parable act to what actually Elijah is doing. And the first thing he does is he publicly rebuilds the altar that has been torn down. What is an altar? An altar is a religious instrument which illustrates a sacrificial life of faith with a hope in heaven and the world to come. People who sacrifice, put things before God on the altar because that is an investment into the heavenly places. It makes no sense from an earthly point of view, from a secular point of view to do a sacrifice. There is no belief in something beyond. But what is happening here is an altar is almost this disruptive, subversive symbol that there's something bigger, that we're going to actually sacrifice to God and there's something beyond than what we can just see. Now, not only does he build the altar and rebuild it, which has been let go through this moment of apostasy, through this moment of religious decline, he then does something really extraordinary. He could have just done the altar, allowed the fire to fall. That would have been enough. But he goes above and beyond. He pours and asks people to pour water all over the altar. Now, this is an extravagant and extreme and shocking act. It's an all or nothing moment. Like what he's doing here, he's eliminating any doubt that if it just caught on fire, maybe it was a hot day, maybe there was, you know, I don't know, lightning nearby, who knows. But this is a different kind of do it again. This is a do it again to actually rebuild something in the people. Why do this? Now, let's look at the numbers here. You have Elijah who is the singular prophet here, who is advocating for the worship of the one true God, it's Elijah. He is an army of one. Coming up against him, we have 850 prophets of Baal and Ashereth, which the scriptures say eat at the table of Jezebel. They are dining with the spirit of control and the spirit of fear. And that's leading them to worship other gods. The people who should be mouthpieces of God are actually mouthing the voices of idols and spiritual entities that are dark. So this does not look like a fair fight. One bloke versus 850 other prophets. 
But Elijah is actually not outnumbered because he has 12 mates. Who are his 12 mates? He doesn't have human mates. He brings out 12 stones that represent the people of God. They're not there. Where are the 12 tribes that are meant to be representing and being a people of holiness, of loving God, of righteousness and justice in the land? They're nowhere to be seen. But actually, look through the lens of faith. They are represented. Scriptures tell us that even the stones will cry out in worship. And so you've got Elijah completely outnumbered. The odds are against him. And he makes the odds even worse by pouring water all over the altar. But then he brings these stones, each representing the potential of the people of God, the 12 tribes, what they were called to do. He brings them. They're represented there even when people are too scared to turn up, even when there's one believer left. This is pointing forward as a symbol of hope. The rocks are hope symbolized. And those rocks actually, says in verse 32, let me read the verse. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come. This is a promise. This word had come to these people. They're not there, but the word is still active even when no one turns up. The word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now, if you've read this chapter, you know that there actually are people. There are faithful in the land. That actually Elijah is not the only one. Sure, he may be the only one coming out publicly and entering into this power battle with the sports, the forces of decline and apostasy that have actually taken over the people of God. And we discover this when we go back to verse 2 at the beginning of this chapter. And it says this, Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab, the king, had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator, Obadiah, it says in brackets, was a devout believer in the Lord. So it's not just Elijah. There's an Obadiah who's in the king's palace, but he's hidden. He's devout and he's faithful, but he's hidden. Verse 4, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophet, trying to silence the voice of God, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each and supplied them with food and water. What does this mean? This means that in times when it seems like decline is inevitable, we're in this weird gray zone, when we're looking at the future of the church, the future of the culture, and fear wants to overtake our hearts and pessimism and worry, God has people out there hidden. They're hidden underground. And why I think one of the reasons that Elijah does this incredibly extravagant, extreme and shocking act of covering the altar in water is, yes, this is a power encounter with the prophets of Baal. Yes, but also he tries to get people to come. This is a public act, which I believe is also to inspire the faithful people of God with an act of hope to come out of their caves of fear. N.T. Wright says this about this passage, comparing it to our modern times. He says, the priests of Baal, 
who he links to, the self-appointed leaders of secular Western culture, have danced around, cutting themselves with their own theories, dreaming dreams of progress and or revolution, and still the kingdom has not come. Powerless. They can do the dances. Our world can promise all the change, how it's going to get rid of injustice, how it's going to move things to a better place, but it's ineffectual because only God can bring God's kingdom. N.T. Wright continues, Many of the faithful Yahweh scribes, what that means is the faithful followers of the one true God, Yahweh, have retreated into caves safe in their private worlds. The land is seeded with people of faith, but they're captured by fear. They're also captured by safety and comfortability in their caves. In the caves, they don't have to worry. They're hidden from Jezebel. They're not in the fray. They actually have the food provided by Obadiah. They've got their needs met, but they're hidden away in a cave. The land is seeded, but the seed needs to sprout through the soil. And this goes back to the original verse. Amos 2.11 says that even in Amos's time, when a similar thing had happened to the people of God, the people of God had gone into a decline. There was corruption in the religious institutions. It seemed that people were turning away from God. The axis of history was moving away from where God wanted it to go. That God says to Israel, I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel? And what are prophets and Nazarites? Prophets are the voice piece of God. They provide the hope of God. They speak God's word over a seemingly hopeless situation. Nazarites, Nazir means this word to separate or to make holy, were people who took a particular oath to be different from everyone else and to embody this extra commitment to God. They didn't cut their hair. They didn't drink alcohol or fermented uh, uh, drinks. No wine, no kombucha. These people were actually making this very different stance. Why? Because they were embodying something. The prophets embodied the hopeful world of God. The Nazarites embodied the hopeful holiness of God. Both were like living stones, altars, a symbol to the world around them that there is a different way and that there is a God of hope and hope is coming. Now, before Jesus, these were specialized roles. There were people called to be prophets. There wasn't heaps of prophets. They were like a class of people. The Nazarites were a special class of people. But this side of the cross and Pentecost, all believers are called to be stones, as First Peter says, living stones in God's temple. You are all being built, and that mantle to be the voice of God's word in the world is the mantle that God gives the disciples. Go out into all the world, making disciples. We are all called to the holiness. Not everyone, you're, that's not me saying don't drink kombucha or you don't need a haircut. But all of us are actually called to live lives of holiness that point people back to God. And so in these in-between moments that the people of God find themselves in history, like we find ourselves in at this time, in which there is a lack of clarity, and we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but in this moment, a lack of clarity, an era is ending, one has begun, where are we? 
There's decline in the church, but a hope for renewal, but renewal's not yet here. Where are we? COVID has happened. We're sort of in this end game. What does it look like? Are we just going to go back to normal? Is there going to be a mutation? Will the world look differently when we re-emerge? Where are we? It's in moments when there's a lack of clarity that God reveals and calls out people who will embody a clarity and a clearness of hope and faith and holiness. At this moment, I believe there is a call going out in the world, calling out the people of God, calling people out from their caves of fear. Now, at this moment, out of Corona, there's a sense where we have built our caves. There's a sense where we've found new patterns and there's been life-giving things. There's been this sense where perhaps running around like a headless chicken, we've found a better way of actually living. And there's great stuff in that. More connection, more connected to your neighborhood, perhaps more connected to the people you live with, with a smaller group of friends you've gone deep with. But there's also this danger that we, at this moment, when the world is changing, will find ourselves captured in our own caves of fear or comfortability or a combination of both. N.T. Wright says this, The altar, of course, will be surrounded by a broad and ugly ditch full of water. It may look impossible for the sacrifice to ever catch fire. That is not our business. Our job is to build the altar. Then... And only then we pray for the fire to fall. What I believe God is teaching is that we still need to pray for a renewal. But there's a period of preparation before the renewal comes. And in that period of preparation, when we want the fire to fall, I think at this time, we actually also need to build altars. Now, we're not going to go around and build literal altars out around Melbourne with slabs of stone. But what actually we're called to do is to turn our lives into a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And so at this moment, there is a call. There is a few Elijahs out there saying, come out of your caves. And so I believe prophetically at this moment, there is this call out there. It's not to the most talented. It's not even to those with the most experience or runs on the board in going to church. It's not those who perhaps even before the pandemic, you weren't that that dialed into church. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, there is a call out now where actually God is saying, come out of the caves. Come out of the entrapment in fear. Come out of just living in a comfortable bubble. Actually, this is the moment when the people hidden underground, and some of that is hidden underground because you don't really believe that God has a call for your life. You've not heard the identity that you have as a royal priest in God's kingdom. You don't understand that you're a child of God. This has not penetrated your mind, your heart, and your soul. But I think the next phase of this altar building period that we are, where we are building altars and secularism feels like it's like they've covered them in water. But I believe at this moment we have to embody hope. And God is calling you out to step into the fray, to actually say, yes, we as the people of God at this time at Red Church, in the church in Melbourne, wherever you're watching, This is the moment where God is saying, come out from underground. I am doing a new thing. Do it again, Lord. Build your altars amongst your people. 
In some places, they're still rocks, but those rocks are actually hopeful symbols like like Elijah had of the people who are going to come and stand in the next chain. There is a generational cohort move in the world at the moment, and God is calling out leaders and disciples and faithful ones and holy ones who are actually going to step into the breach in the next stage. So will you come out of your cave? I'm going to pray. God, We thank you for this moment and we thank you that we're created for this moment. And I just want to pray against any spirit of control, any spirit of fear, any spirit of comfort, which is a combination of control and fear. And we just want to break that in Jesus' name. And we just want to pray, Father, that you will prepare and make your altars. We know that our lives are to be altars to you, that we're called to be living sacrifices, to place everything on the altar before you. And we do that now. And I just pray that those listening and watching who have been in that cave, who's now it's time to actually step out. And we know that we're not fully formed. We know that we're filled with fears. We know that perhaps we feel like we don't have enough faith, but you promise that you will grow faith in us. We know, Father, that faith is hope enacted and that we can't do this just reading a book or listening to a podcast, that actually we now have to step and start walking in your kingdom as Jesus sent out the disciples two by two to learn the ways of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, send us out now. Send us out now. And at this moment, Raise up new leaders, raise up new disciples, raise up holy people, worshippers, people to go into every industry, into relationships, into different parts of Australia, around the world. Raise people at this moment here at Red Church who will be faithful and holy and will embody in incredible ways your heavenly truth, the world to come, your nature to the world. We pray this now. May your Holy Spirit Just gently bring us out of those underground dwellings that we've created, hiding away. May we burst out of those places like you burst out of the tomb 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.